According to Fight the New Drug, a non-religious, non-legislative nonprofit raising awareness on the harmful effects of online pornography, most kids today are exposed to porn by age 13. Another study from 2023 showed 73% of teens reported that they have consumed pornography. All participants of the study reported that they were exposed to porn by age 12. Another 15% say that they saw it for the first time when they were 10 years old or younger. More shockingly, at least one in three porn videos show sexual violence or aggression, and 53% of boys and 39% of girls believe that pornography is a realistic depiction of sex. Research also shows that people who consume porn tend to become less satisfied in their relationships, less committed to their partner, and more accepting of cheating. In addition to this, much of the content is non-consensual and contains abuse. There have been many documented instances of verified accounts posting non-consensual content, child sexual abuse material, or content made of sex trafficking victims. All these facts clearly show us that pornography is a clear and present danger to our society, and yet it is so incredibly easy to access this filth at a moment's notice. So on this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will tackle the issue head on as we discuss how you can rid yourself of porn addiction in your life as well as how our culture can take steps to rid itself of pornography on a societal level. All this and more, so stick around. Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I'm host of this podcast, and we are joined tonight by two first-time guests, the first of which is John Schweppe. So, John, go ahead and uh, let the audience know who you are and what you do. Well, my name is John Schweppe. Uh, I'm a conservative activist. I work at American Principles Project, which is a group based uh, out of D.C., and uh, we bill ourselves as the NRA for the family. And so our job is to get involved in campaigns and elections and make sure that we're uh, helping to elect pro-family candidates and punishing the anti-family candidates. And so that's mostly what we do, but we also uh, engage in policy and try to get lawmakers to uh, to be as based as possible, which I think we've been able to do pretty successfully on this issue over the last couple of years. Awesome. Well, welcome, John. Glad to have you. And we're also joined by first-timer Timothy Regal. So, Timothy, same task. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Excited to, to be here and have this conversation. Uh, what I do is I'm a porn and sex addiction coach. So I work one-on-one -on -one with men to help them uh, quit their addictions, help them overcome it, discover what the real issues are behind their addictions, um, quit for good, kind of heal their families, heal the relationships and their marriages, kind of get their lives on the right track and turn them around. So I work one-on-one -on -one with men um, to do to do that, to quit and, and get healthy and get, get freedom and, and uh, sobriety and to become better men. Awesome. Glad to have you. And we'll definitely tackle a lot of that as we go on our conversation. And I'm joined again by my regular co-host, Michael Aper. Hey, friends. As always, I'm a God-fearing student of Scripture. I'd love to see the righteousness of God restored to his people. And getting out of the clutches of porn is a great way to start. Awesome. Amen to that. Before we get started, be sure to like us on 
uh, follow, follow us on Twitter, I should say, or X, whatever you want to call it now, at Forge and A for additional content and updates on the show. Be sure to share this video and repost the stream if you're on X. Um, if you are on X, though, feel free to jump over to YouTube or Rumble if you want to be a part of the live chat. We do have several people in the chat already. I see Celine and Shara, Michaela, Zach of all. Welcome in, everyone. We appreciate you guys being here. Feel free to um, tune in at any point and um, be sure to throw out your questions for our guests and for Michael and I, and we'll do our best to get to as much of it as possible as it is relevant to the conversation. So that being said, um, obviously, this is a pretty heavy conversation tonight, um, but it's one that uh, really needs to be addressed. So um, first and foremost, I think uh, probably a good place to start. I I'll go ahead and, and throw it over to you, Timothy, to just give us a super quick um, rundown of your story because it's a pretty incredible story. If you can just give us maybe the the uh, cliff note version of that for our audience, um, and we'll kind of use that as a starting point, and then we'll turn it over um, to you, John, to give us a little bit of an idea of some of the work that um, American Principles Project has done on the legislation front. So go ahead, Timothy. Sure. So I spent uh, over 15 years in my own porn and sex addiction. What started out as a teenager, like a lot of young guys uh, do, you know, escalated into a full-blown addiction. Um, it got worse as I got older into my later high school teen years, um, just continued uh, becoming more regular and, and escalating both in content and in, in frequency and, and reliance on it. I got married in my early 20s, kind of thought that would fix it um, naively and it didn't it just continued to get worse to the point where not only was it just porn and things like that to where it escalated into physical things um, hookups with people affairs um, even into you know ridiculous things like sex clubs and swinger clubs and, and all these kind of horrible things that it escalated into and that continued on throughout the first 10 years of our marriage and I would go for a while and get caught and like any good liar, I BS'd my way out of it um, and did good for a while, but would always kind of go back to it. And I could I could find freedom for a while. You know, there were times I had at one point I had a year in of, of freedom from it. And but I always eventually went back to it. And so it was this continuing cycle of of a little bit of success, followed by months and months of, of just, you know, terrible addiction with it. My wife and I separated for almost a year. Um, we eventually did get back together. And I did all the things you're supposed to do when, when you're struggling with porn and sex addiction. You know, I went to counseling. I talked to the pastors. I went to men's retreats. I read all the books. I did the men's Bible studies. I did all those things you're supposed to do. None of them worked. None of them worked. So this kind of cycle continued, on, like I said, on and off for 10 years, and it was um, five, well, almost six years ago now, next year, it'll be six years that kind of the last thing happened was I got caught by some friends of mine and uh, not by my wife, but I got caught by my friends and they kind of exposed me and I had the risk of, of losing everything, losing my marriage, losing my family, my kids, uh, possibly even my career. And so at that time I got serious help. I met with a pastor of mine who was a strong mentor to me and helped me figure out what was truly the issue for me. He didn't just condemn me and, and tell me what a filthy sinner I am and just stop or just pray harder or just try harder or anything like that. I mean, he prayed with me and taught me and teach me and, and rightfully told me what I was doing with sin. 
but he showed me love too. And he helped me figure out what was truly at the cause of it. And it wasn't that I was just hornier than everybody else or that I was just a sexual pervert. You know, I was using porn to mask pain. Hmm. And so he helped me dig deep into my life and realize there were some emotional issues that I had. And I was using porn to porn and sex to run away from that, to cope with that, to deal with that. Hmm. And it's when I started doing that and realizing that this is a, emotional issue, a spiritual issue, and not just a sexual issue that I truly got the healing. So he gave me the encouragement, the guidance, the love to do that. And then I found, found success with it finally, because I was dealing with the core of the problem, not just treating, you know, treating symptoms. My wife and I uh, renewed our wedding vows on our 10th wedding anniversary. And we've restored our marriage. Our marriage is, is thriving like it never has before. And a couple of years later, I had opportunity to mentor some young men in my in my church and realized how how bad the porn stuff was with them with, you know, high school, college age kids. And so I started mentoring to them and being an encouragement to them and taught a Bible study and did some things. And then then COVID hit and upended everything. And I started doing the online type of thing and started on Twitter and online and, and doing the coaching and, and wasn't something I ever expected to be doing, but God kind of. You know, I put my foot in the door and God kicked the door wide open like, you know, he does. And so it'll be it'll be four years next year that I've been been coaching men one on one and helped, you know, hundreds of men um, through my one on one coaching or through my book, Living Porn Free, help them to to find freedom and heal their relationships and, and become the godly men they were intended to be. And so that's that's my story and kind of what I do do for men now. I, you know, I think the Lord brought me through all that and so that I could turn around and have that testimony and help other men through the same darkness that I went through. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, you definitely have an incredible testimony and we'll, we'll definitely backtrack to some of what you said there throughout our conversation. Uh, John, I wanted to turn it over to you first to, to get your kind of, kind of give us a little bit of um, the background of what American principles projects has been doing in terms of fighting pornography um, on the legislative front. Um, and uh, so maybe give us a little bit of an idea of uh, what the landscape kind of looks like right now um, with access to pornography across the nation. And then, of course, if you want to share any uh, any of your personal um, story of how you got involved in um, working with uh, APP or, um, you know, anything uh, with your own walk um, and uh, war against pornography, because, of course, this is uh, this is a battle that every man faces. So um, feel free to just uh, share as much as you like on that front. Sure. Um, and if I forget to answer one of those questions, follow up with me. Um, sure. So I think, you know, one of the things about this issue is that uh, certainly it's something that every man knows is, and, and women too, they know it's a pressing issue. It's an issue that's affecting all of our sex lives. It's an issue that's affecting our psyches. But for the longest time, certainly in the age of the internet, uh, it's just been one of those things we just kind of tolerate. Um, you know, and you look to uh, the Supreme Court decision in 1996, might have been 97, uh, Reno v. ACLU, you know, people took from that, oh, you can't protect kids from porn. Uh, you know, there's no ability to do age verification. It's just speech. That is what it is. And so you have all these, you know, social conservatives for the last, oh, gosh, you know, 20, 25 years uh, up until recently, basically kind of conceding the issue. And of course, it's had a tremendous effect on our culture. Uh, you know, you look at the transgender movement 
And a lot of the, especially males who are identifying now as women, a lot of that's driven by pornography, by um, autogynephilia and all these you know, weird fetishes. And so, um, you know, we at APP, we really have identified porn as kind of a source uh, for a lot of societal ills, whether you look at the breakdown of the family, whether you look at some of these uh, recent epidemics uh, like transgenderism and, you know, really wanted to see if there was something we could do about it. And there's obviously been, you know, some legislative efforts in the past to kind of identify porn as a public health crisis, you know, kind of pointing to, hey, this is something we should do something about. But up until recently, there hasn't actually been the effort uh, to limit its distribution. And so we've been working on these age verification bills in the states to start with kids. You know, obviously, I think we all acknowledge pornography is bad for adults as well. Um, but, you know, certainly for, for children, you know, we see, as you, as you mentioned at the beginning, the average age of first exposure being 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, you know, that's where we can really start and make a difference and try to, um, you know, nip this addiction in the bud early before it really warps young people's views of, of sexuality. And, um, you know, the, the encouraging thing on this is that I think there's been tremendous reception to this. Um, you know, when, when we started working on this, I think uh, our president, Terry Schilling, wrote a piece for First Things Magazine. It's a Catholic periodical. Um, would have been like 2019, and it was how to regulate pornography. And there was some gentle pushback, like, ah, that might be, you know, legally difficult. But this also kind of happened at the same time as the rise of the new right. And so there's this willingness among conservatives to um, to push back against the left and push back against these cultural ills like never before. And, and I think you're seeing that with state legislators uh, now, where we have eight states that have already passed age verification legislation, um, and another, you know, I, I think in 2024, another 15 probably that will do the same. And so while that we can get into this, but while that legislation is really limited in its application, I think it's important that states are basically saying this is where we stand. Uh, we don't think it's appropriate to have porn sites distributing uh, obscene pornography to kids. And we're going to make it our policy to to end that. And so um, can you go ahead and just clarify, uh, you said that you have multiple states working with this. So what states have you been currently finding success in? So, all right, this is a good pop quiz. The the, the states that have passed it so far, Louisiana, uh, you have a legislator there named Lori Schlegel, and she really kind of took this on initially. There'd been some academic talk about doing age verification. She did the legwork to really get this passed into law initially in, in, uh, in Louisiana. You also have uh, Arkansas, Virginia, Mississippi, uh, Montana. Uh, Texas was one we were very involved in, and that was a big deal because Texas is, you know, kind of seen as conservative uh, utopia, right? So if, if it's happening there, <laughs> a lot of these other red states want to do it. Um, and then, you know, a few others. The, the big surprise was Virginia, right? Virginia mm -hmm. is a state mm -hmm. where... Yes, we have a Republican governor, but we actually have uh, a very close legislature and one of the chambers is, is Democrat controlled. And that bill actually passed almost unanimously. So uh, I think there's real excitement here. I've heard from uh, legislators in blue states who think that there might be agreement uh, among Democrats on this. You know, the only people who are publicly opposing this right now are kind of the extreme LGBT activists who are saying mm -hmm. that this is going to uh, harm trans kids or whatever. Uh, but generally, you know, there's there's support for this. And if there's not, they're just kind of staying quiet rather than publicly opposing it. And just to clarify, 
we're talking age verification. So this is just a, a basically this is just legislation that is requiring these porn distributors to verify the age of the user to make sure that they're over 18. That's correct. And, and basically there's a, there's a liability to it. So if they don't do it, it, you know, there's lots of porn sites right now that you have to click, Oh, I'm 18. So I can go on here. And you know, those of us who are 13, 14, 15, no, you just click it and you go on, right. There's that wasn't a verification. This is legit. Uh, you know, these sites, if, if, um, let's say I'm, I am a parent, if my kid accessed it, um, I would have standing to be able to sue these websites Mm. And, uh, and, you know, basically it's on them to make sure that kids are not accessing. And how would they do that? Like what so measures it, can it, be put? Sure, sure. So there's a couple different ways and they, these laws are written in a way to allow for new technology to arise. But the first one, which Louisiana used is a state ID system. So basically you have to show your ID um, to log in. Now there is language in the laws that basically say that there's a privacy function here. Uh, that that data can't be stored. So it has to be like kind of like flashing your ID to a bouncer at a bar. Uh, but but that was in the Louisiana law. There's also uh, commercially available forms of age verification. And some of this gets into the the creepy privacy stuff. But the reality is I'm, I'm talking to you guys right now on Google Chrome uh, on my browser. So Google has all sorts of data on me. Uh, that data is sold to all sorts of companies. And so the reality is there are companies out there already who can you know, analyze that data and tell a porn site with 99.99% certainty you know, that I'm a certain age. And so um, this is actually an eligible form of verification for these sites. Uh, and so that's the one where I think you'll actually see a lot of sites end up using it, um, because, it because it is pretty reliable. Hmm. So something you said earlier is said that the main people that are opposed to this are more of the extreme people in the LGBTQ IA2 plus community. And you said that their main argument is that this would somehow harm trans kids. So I'm going to ask the glaring question, which is how does verifying that someone is not a minor accessing porn, how does that hurt trans individuals? Well, I think in that radical view of sexuality, which by the way, is predicated on the idea that children should be exploring their sexuality and um, you know, the, the reality is that they, they want kids accessing porn to, to a certain degree. Um, the, the question of why that is, is, is one I think a lot of us ask and why we uh, try to avoid using the word pedophile to describe some of these activists. But I, the, I'm going to psychoanalyze, but I think for a lot of them, you know, they're dealing with tremendous bodily insecurity about themselves, even as they're speaking loudly on social media, demanding trans rights and all of that. And so for them, they look back to the body issues they had as children, and then they mm-hmm. kind of take that and then impose it onto these kids. And so for them, they, they think that kids at early ages should be able to identify as their gender identity. Um, they, porn is a way for them to, to head down that road. Um, and in some cases, I think there's, I guess, good faith concerns that uh, these laws could um, inhibit the ability to have like forums and discussions about these issues. And again, this is a question of really should kids be in that situation where they're talking to adults privately on the internet without their parents knowing? Um, I think a lot of folks, including me, would would say that's probably not the best idea, but um, that's also where the approach is. But again, what's nice from our perspective 
is that this opposition to the age verification movement isn't really hasn't really crystallized yet. So you have a few activists on the internet, uh, but lawmakers aren't really hearing from them. I mean, to be honest, if you think about it, you have to be kind of a weirdo to call your legislator to say, hands off my porn. I don't think a lot right. of people are going to do that. Um, and so, you know, where we have parents on our side, we have, you know, family groups, we have, you know, folks like Timothy who have gone through this, know exactly what porn on the internet looks like and how it can damage their lives. Um, and, and I think the more, you know, our movement's really strong. And so I, I think we're going to be able to triumph because of that alone, actually. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's an encouraging piece to take away. You mentioned earlier how you think a lot of the um, ideology that opposes it is really brought on by issues that individuals have as children. Uh, Shara in the chat earlier actually said, uh, even secular studies have demonstrated that that porn is linked to the abuse of children. And I've definitely heard a lot of those statistics as well. And if, if we need to, we can even pull some up and, and cite them if uh, if we feel that that is needed in our discussion. But um, Timothy, well, you've I obviously coached a lot of stuff on that too. Right, exactly, exactly. And that that's a great website. Fight the New Drug is one that I use a lot there, um, you know, because they don't have a religious uh, bent to it. So it's it's something that's pretty uh, shareable to um, anyone who's not necessarily a member of the, of, uh, the Christian faith like we are. Um, so just as a resource for you, audience members, fightthenewdrug.org um, is a great place to kind of equip yourself with some of that knowledge. Um, Timothy, since you've coached a lot of guys through uh, through this issue, I mean, do do you see that that um, past trauma from childhood is a is a theme among individuals who have this addiction? It's it's not just a theme; it's it's every single one. Mm. It, it, it's I have not encountered a guy who doesn't have something that they have emotional trauma from that I believe is the reason they're addicted to porn. Even the guys that don't think they do. No, I work with guys who have major red flag trauma. You know, they were sexually abused. They were physically abused, divorce, death, you know, whatever. But I work with just as many guys, myself included, who didn't have any of that. I grew up in a healthy Christian family. My dad was a pastor. You know, I have wonderful parents. I have a wonderful relationship with my parents. But things still happen when you're in your teenage years that cause emotional pain. And if in those teenage years, you learn to cope with that through porn, you, while your brain is developing and the science can, can show this, your, um, fight the new drug talks a lot about that. Another great resource is called your brain on porn, which kind of goes into the more medical scientific type of aspect of it. But your brain create shortcuts to where it, it is when it faces a trigger like that, you, you immediately go to that to seek, seek the comfort. So I found that, that almost every man I've worked with, has some sort of emotional issue. It may not always be the big major thing that people think of. And a lot of these kinds of guys, it's like a light bulb going off for them because we'll start talking about stuff and they'll, and they'll talk about things and, and they'll say, well, yeah, this, this might've happened, or it might even be something as, as subtle as, well, I'll use me, for example. I had a girlfriend in high school that, that cheated on me and dumped me. Hmm. You know, now I'm in my late 30s. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know, who, who doesn't get dumped in high school? <laughs> right? You know, but that left some emotional damage on me. And when I was 17 years old, I learned to deal with that through 
porn. That was my because I've had that rejection and I learned to fear rejection and fear not being good enough. And so porn became my escape for that because there's no fear of rejection. There's no risk of that. It was a I hate the term, but quote unquote safe space for me to go to when I felt those negative emotions that continues on through our adult life to where even though the triggers may change, it might be a crappy day at work or a fight with my wife or something like that inside. I still go back to that emotional damage that happened when I was a teenager. You know, I have those same fears, those same emotions, and I react and, and would act out in the same way by using porn and sex to, de- to cope with it and to, to escape it. And so that's what I see with almost every man I work with. The, the types of trauma change and are different for each individual person, but everybody has their why. And I think that's with, with every addiction, not just porn addiction, any addiction. It's not just a, there are medical parts of it. There are chemical parts of it. But deep down, each one of them is using this addiction to escape something or to run away from something. Hmm. So the cure for me and for all the men I've coached has been finding that and learning to deal with it in a healthy way. Hmm. What does that process normally look like? So it takes, it takes a lot of hard work is what it really does. And it takes perseverance and it takes fighting through the hard times, you know, guys, so many guys get discouraged. And I did for so long by having a relapse and it happens. Relapse is a part of recovery. It's not a failure of recovery. Mm. and guys get get hung up on the streaks they're like oh i went two weeks and then i watched porn again and i threw away all my progress well i look at it differently i look at that say no if you went two weeks you had 13 days of success and you had one loss you know that's a 928 batting average right Mm. it's pretty good so start focusing on that you know build up your victories build up your momentum through that way instead of always focusing on your failures we focus on our failures. We allow that shame to overtake us, and then it just drives that cycle. So you deal with a negative emotion, so you go to porn to escape it. Then you deal with the shame from watching porn, so then you have another negative emotion, and it just perpetuates this endless shame cycle. And so we need to break out of that uh, by encouraging healthy habits, by encouraging uh, accountability. Uh, routine is a huge part of it. Um, having boundaries in place. I'm, I'm a big advocate of blocking software. It's not a be all end all, but it's a very helpful tool. The accountability that I provide in coaching pair that with all the emotional work that we do and, and discovering what those wounds are, what that trauma is, what they made you believe about yourself and then learning healthy, healthy ways in order to, to face it and deal with it. Kind of those two sides of it, dealing with the, the practical side of it. Yes. But also the emotional side of it. I think we need both of those. And that's where so many other things have failed where a lot of things are just like, Oh, it's just a bad habit. If you can kick it for 21 days, you can, you're, you're good. You know, or you just need to try harder or in the church, pray harder. I've mm-hmm. heard a lot of guys be told that by, by pastors in the church, which, Yes, it's something you should be praying about. But it, it's something that, that's got to be dealt with at the core. And so that's where what I do is, is working with those guys to figure out what the true cause is and, and deal with it from the inside out instead of just trying to, you know, willpower and discipline your way to freedom. If I can, I'd like to speak Please. a little bit about this from my perspective. Uh, unfortunately, similar to Timothy, I'd 
struggled with a pornography addiction from a young age. It was something that I was introduced to and and then nursed into something that got a hold of my life for a significant amount of time, probably 12 plus years. And uh, thanks be to God, I've found freedom from that now going on four years of total freedom from a pornography addiction. But I spent probably 10 plus years in a shame cycle in the church where mm -hmm. I had accountability partners, I had mentors, I had all the resources and I read every young man's battle and it didn't fix yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I, I think a, a big part of what changed for me and every guy's going to have their own story. That's going to be unique and different, but I know that God called me to obedience in a way that I hadn't understood it before. I thought obedience meant doing the right things mm -hmm. and God got a hold of my heart called me to obedience first in my baptism and as a kid who was raised up in the church had pastored a church before uh, as a youth pastor it was something that i was ashamed of that i hadn't been baptized so i hid the fact and that was i think a launching pad for me where god said i called you to obedience are you going to do what i said or not you know john chapter 14 jesus says to his disciples if you love me you'll follow my commandments and then a little bit later in the next page, he says, uh, others will know you by your love. So it's, you know, obedience is not just checking off the right things of what to do and saying, you know, just like Timothy was just saying, oh, I made it another day without looking at porn. And something that was significant to me, and I even wrote it on the inside of my Bible on the first, like the cover page. I said, do not fight against sin, fight for God. And mm. I mm. quoted out of Romans 6 through 8 there. And studying Romans 6 through 8 was a big step for me to realize, oh, I am stuck and I am a sin slave. I'm a slave right. to my sin. And what Paul writes in Romans, and I'll quote Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 here. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And to me, it's obedience to God and having a genuine relationship with God where I desire obedience and I choose to die to myself and become a slave to righteousness. That's what gave me freedom and total freedom from a, what felt like a lifelong addiction that I could not escape and an addiction that I had all of the tools necessary to be freed from. And I was disciplined and I, you know, all of this gradually helped in a lot of ways. But what really changed in my heart was the decision to no longer be a slave to sin, but to be a slave to righteousness and I want to encourage if there's any men or women listening who are struggling with this obedience doesn't mean just doing the right thing because you know what the right thing is because that that pattern that we fall into so easily is a shame pattern like timothy just mentioned mm -hmm. is we fall into shame but christ has not called us to shame he's called us to repentance
And when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, like he's promised to when we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. And conviction demands guilt. And guilt demands repentance. Shame is not a part of the plan. Guilt, guilt is something that can be separated from shame. And I don't think we're taught that well enough in the church, and especially the young men who are raised up being told, if you look at porn, you're wrong, and you need to pray harder, and you need to work harder, and you need to be more disciplined, and the answer is just be better. Well, what that does is that propagates a culture of shame when what we're dealing with is guilt. And what Christ would have said to us while he sits with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, he doesn't say, I accept you how you are. Oh boy, let's just explore our sexuality together. Uh, He says, repent, go and sin no more. He says to a lot of these decrepit people who are just rotting away in their sin. And so often we have these two extremes where it's like, be better or I accept you as you are. And right. I've seen that. I've seen that a lot as well. Kind of this, this polarizing of it where, yeah, you're either this dirty, filthy simmer that sinner that's going to rot in hell because of what you're doing or, Hey, all are welcome. Everything's great. You know, you know, whatever. And you know, that God's speaks truth and love. Someone's struggling. We need to call out the truth. That is a sin. It's a sin and you need to repent. But at the same time, we need to understand that this person is struggling. Yeah. You know, the entire time I was addicted to it, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was a sin. There was never a time I tried to justify it. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to be free from it, but I was fighting it. And I'm glad you mentioned mentioned the book of Romans because I use Romans 7 a lot mm-hmm. where Paul talks about his struggle with sin. He says, I know what the right thing to do is, but I still do the wrong thing. And I don't want to do the wrong thing, but I still do it. And he goes this back and forth a couple of times. And he says, it's, it's, it's not me, but it's the sin that lives within me. But thanks be, to, thanks be to God, I have the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what yeah. makes the difference. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to it. So guys are struggling with it, even though they don't want to be struggling with it. Uh, they want to be free from it. You know, I, I found very few men that, that really deep down want to watch porn. Hmm. They, they might make some, you know, dumb, macho joke about it or something. But deep down, they know it's not. Even if they're not Christian, they know it's, it's not, not right, not ideal. Um, and guys are struggling with it. And, and like you say, they're dealing with that shame. And it's keeping them stuck. The difference between guilt and shame is guilt says I made a mistake. Guilt, shame says I am a mistake. And that's a huge difference there. Yeah. And so guys are believing that they are a mistake. And that goes back to the emotional stuff I was talking about earlier, where it cuts to the to those deep emotions. And that's what keeps them trapped is that shame. And we need to separate that and realize, hey, no, you're, you're guilty of a sin, but yeah. you can repent and you can find forgiveness. If you are a mistake, then then in, in that person's mind, there's no healing for them. There's no there's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. And when we can make that differentiation, they realize that there is love, there is forgiveness, there is healing. And they find that through dealing with the core issues. But what the core of it is, is the change in the heart. And I think that's what you were describing, Michael. You said it yeah. there. It's, it's, it's the heart. And what changes our heart? 
what turns our, our, you know, our heart of stone into a heart of love is, is that grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And, and that's where the true healing comes in and the true forgiveness. Yeah. And I think what we're, what we're handling in this conversation is on one hand, Timothy, what you're talking about is guys who are already snared mm-hmm. and helping them find value and freedom beyond that. And John, the work that you're doing to prevent that, I think that's a huge portion of this because a lot of what you were talking about earlier with the legislations that are being passed for consent or not just, pardon me, not consent, but for age restrictions and limiting the amount of children that are being exposed to this. Although I am skeptical as to whether that would prevent any guy who's already knows how to get access what it could do is prevent that 11 year old from searching mm-hmm. that thing that he heard about at school. Yeah. And yeah. Talk to us more about that and what the goal is in the end. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, our goal has been pretty explicit. Uh, you know, we believe pornography is obscenity and, you know, we used to enforce obscenity laws in this country. Uh, we got away from that really after Reagan for whatever reason, it's just kind of what's happened. Uh, you can point to the Supreme Court kind of narrowing the, the definition of obscenity. Uh, but, you know, since then, you know, you, you kind of have this free reign of, oh, adults accessing pornography is just speech. Um, and, you know, I, we want to prosecute that, too. But, you know, what you start with is, you know, I think for me, the first time I saw porn was probably age 17, age 18. But that's not the norm now. Right. The norm now is, you know, seeing stuff really, really early. And, you know, something that stuck with me, I remember in college, you know, my first exposure to porn was 4chan, right? Mm. And so, you know, I was going to 4chan for, you know, all the trolling stuff, you know, uh, I don't know how into 4chan culture you guys ever got, but, um, you know, but but porn was a big part of it. And you started seeing exactly what, what the internet was pushing in terms of pornography. And this is what I tell legislators all the time, especially you know, of a certain generation, you guys don't know what you're dealing with. This isn't a freedom issue, right? Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about some of these fetishes, this weird stuff, I mean, it's it's very odd, but you'll see things on Twitter and understand that what they're doing there was derived from a fetish from porn because you're aware of it, right? Mm. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of that. And I, I, I think, you know, I went to college with folks who I knew you know, really went down this road and then, you know, had all sorts of problems later. Um, So, you know, I've been fortunate in my life where it hasn't been as big of an issue. I was curious in college. Um, But, you know, the the reality is that this is a problem for so many men and women, and it's really affecting their, it's creating sexual dysfunction. It's ruining marriages. It's preventing us from having more kids. And so, you know, I think ultimately that's, that's the, the, the concern we have with it. So, you know, age verification, you know, pr- protecting 11, 12, 13 year olds. The idea is if you get to them early or if you prevent the porn sites from getting to them early, they'll grow up with a more normalized understanding of human sexuality. And that can hopefully help them, you know, form more normal relationships and, and live happy lives. Um, I, that's an ideal goal. But, you know, really, and I, I don't really hide this. We don't hide this at APP. You know, age verification is the first step of a, of a long war on porn. And, you yeah. know, we, we believe this stuff shouldn't be accessible to anyone. Uh, and so we want to do everything we can to, to limit its distribution. 
That's awesome. Yep. To me, porn is a is a gateway drug. It really is. Yeah. You know, it can start as innocently as, you know, the hormonal 13-year-old Googling boobs. <laughs> you know? And, but it's dangerous because it does escalate so much. And what sometimes, honestly, innocently does happen is just a, a hormonal teenage boy exploring, you know, that some of that is natural, okay? And, but... That conversation needs to happen with with his parents, with the church, with with healthy ways, not Googling things. And one of the reasons that porn is such a gateway drug and why it's so dangerous is when you get addicted to it and you're watching it regularly. Like any addiction, you eventually develop a tolerance and you need more and more of the same uh, impetus in order to get the same release, the same high, the same whatever. With other addictions, alcohol, drugs, you just do more, right? Alcoholics just drink more. You know, drug addicts shoot up more, take more drugs. Porn's different because porn addicts don't just watch the same video over and over and over again. It's always got to be something different. So porn always has to be something new, has to be something novel. And so that where it can go from some innocent teenage boy, you know, just learning what sex is to getting into the weird fetish stuff, the extreme hardcore stuff. For me, it went into from that. It went into, you know, chat rooms were a big thing back in the early 2000s, um, showing my age there. But um, and then, you know, into into now it's into the OnlyFans and the Tinder hookups and, the, and all that sort of thing. And I firmly believe that's where a lot of these real extreme issues are coming from why there's so much pedophilia now i think that that is an escalation of porn addiction i think a lot of the lgbt stuff john you you hinted at this as well that a lot of these perversions of the transgenderism are coming out of porn addictions Mm -hmm. because they're constantly exploring and exploring and seeing all these new things and, and just regular sex isn't enough for them anymore so they have to explore something new, something novel. So they get into gay stuff. They get into trans stuff. They get into all these weird fetishes. And then it comes out in their real life. You know, there's men who can't maintain erections, who have erectile dysfunction in their 20s. And yeah. They should be their most virile. And they can't maintain erection to even have sex with a real woman or their wife. So, or they don't desire their wife. Or well, exa- that's, that's a, because they yeah, trained themselves. Exactly. That's, that's a huge problem, too. Um, I say all the time, you know, um, you know, sexless marriages don't cause porn addiction. Porn addiction causes sexless marriages. Yeah. It's the opposite of what conventional wisdom is. So, you know, all these things add up to, like John was saying, they come back to the start, which is we used to be teenagers when, when, when I was a teenager. Now, like you say, it's eight, nine, ten years old. And that's when it's starting. And so. Instead of like us, who, you know, we might have started when we were 15, 16, 17 college years. And then and as bad as it is with us, now these kids are getting it at eight or nine years old. And, and they're having 10 years of it before they even get to the teenage. Yeah. Times. You know, it all comes back to that. That starting point is underage kids. And, and historically, it was mostly just boys. Now we're seeing it's even, you know, going crazy with girls, too. Yep. But underage kids, it starts with the porn. 
Yeah. And to that point, I wanted to kind of just tell a bit of my story as well, because I can tell you that uh, for me, uh, my first exposure was at age 11. So I was one of those statistics. Um, you know, I, I definitely saw it before I even had a proper birds and bees conversation really uh, to my memory, you know? And so for me, I can say that it was, it was like a pop-up because, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm by no means old, but I'm also not so young that the internet was pretty new and it was the wild west back then, you know, where, where pop-ups were a thing all the time. If, you know, those of us that know what the old, old internet was like, uh, you know, there was a, there was a whole lot more crazy things like that. And I can say that uh, it was a pop-up for me that did it when I was at age 11. Uh, but another thing beyond that too, is there's, there's porn in Hollywood. And I can say that, uh, for me, I had that early exposure of accidental incidents on the, on the, the web where I wasn't even desiring it. I would like click away and, and fear as a, as a young, young boy, really. Um, and but then at the same time, then you have uh, pornography in Hollywood movies. I remember just watching TV, and it would just be some movie that was uh, that was just playing on on one of the TV stations that uh, maybe I would I would frequent without even knowing much about what the what the movie was going to be. Just trying to you know explore uh, what's on the television, and suddenly you've got you've got these um, sex scenes, and many of them are are considered PG thirteen, but by by our culture's standards, what's PG thirteen, you know, is really, in my opinion, completely inappropriate for someone of age thirteen to be viewing, and that really only just added to my curiosity and started to pique my interest, and that made it to where now I knew that it existed on the internet. Well, now I've got this other catalyst that's constantly popping in front of me. Um, you know, when I'm not on the computer, I'm on the TV, and suddenly Hollywood is starting to starting to seep some stuff into me. And so suddenly, you know, you 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 look something up for the first time when you're 11, and then it then it led me down to a long years long battle of being addicted. And my story is very similar to Michael's. In fact, we're we were college roommates and we got to really help one another uh, through our struggles. And we, we really unpacked a lot of the, uh, a lot of the baggage that comes with an addiction to pornography. And and that's a lot of the reasons why Michael and I are, are such good friends is we, we went through that battle together. Um, but uh, you know, it really truly is an addiction. And one of the things that I would say is, is if, if you're a parent or um, you know, maybe uh maybe you're a spouse and you have never had this addiction. Um, first and foremost, I, I want to, I'm, I'm hoping that this can be enlightening for you because something that you need to remember is back in the day, um, just a couple decades back, if you wanted to get your hands on pornography, you had to go to the gas station and pick up a playboy and that there was some public shame to that, right? You had to go and purchase the playboy in front of everyone. And, and suddenly you've, you've ousted yourself as, yeah. as being perverse. Nowadays, it's not like that. It's, it's just at the, t at the tip of our fingers, you can access pornography whenever you want. Or and you had that creepy room in the back of the video rental store. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know? And so, so my point is the access has only gotten easier. So we, in a way there's, there's two types of, there's there's some destigmatization that needs to happen as well as some stigmatization um, on on uh, the opposite end of the coin. So uh, on one side of the coin, we need to destigmatize the idea that it's it's not abnormal for anyone, men or women, to be addicted to porn or to have had an addiction. 
And we need to normalize having these hard conversations because if we don't allow people to have these conversations, they won't seek proper help. And we need people to seek proper help. We need people to to be willing to go and and hit Timothy up for some coaching, you know, so that they can actually defeat this addiction. But they're only going to be able to do that if they feel comfortable enough to confess their sin and confess their struggle. Um, but then at the same time, we also need to stigmatize the use of it um, so that we're, we're not we're not stigmatizing the person. We're not shaming the person like we talked about earlier, but we are shaming the act. Because to your point, Timothy, first of all, something that you said about your story is um, it wasn't until your friends cut you off that you started to actually make serious changes. So obviously your friends made you actually feel some consequences of your actions. And then John, to your point, that ties in so well with what the APP is trying to do, because you're trying to re-stigmatize the porn industry. And the reality is we we've talked a lot on this show in the past about how you can't legislate morality, but at the same time, laws do form a culture to some degree. Um, Now you can argue how much of it's Hollywood, how much of it is legislation, how much of it is religion, but either way, a law does impact a culture. And so we do need to stigmatize the use of pornography while at the same time, recognizing that pornography has a type of chemical addiction to it, that it's just that there's a reason why the, the site we referenced earlier is called fight the new drug, because it does do things to you chemically that can make a person just as addicted to it as if they were addicted to smoking or doing other types of hard drugs. I think it's a little bit subjective, but I've heard before that pornography is just as addictive, if not more than cocaine. Again, I don't know. Um, you know, Timothy, you might know more of that than, than me, but I I've heard that that is a thing. Uh, so to that point, John, I was just thinking about this while we were talking. Is there a way to almost approach this conversation from a legislative standpoint, kind of in a similar way as that we would regulate other substance abuses? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to your point, I mean, I think the besides going after the porn sites themselves, which I I, I think they bear the blame here more than, you know, the companies I'm going to talk about next. But, you know, ultimately, this is the problem. Truly. Right. Uh, I would never I, I my oldest kid is five. I have four kids and uh, I I will never give them access to the Internet on a device. That seems insane. Now, I know I know a lot of parents have done that, but I think we've seen the social experiment play out. And you certainly see the CEOs of these major tech companies, you know, demonstrating that they're not doing it for their kids. So I think, you know, that's got to be first and foremost. And And frankly, you know, I think there is something where you could maybe pass laws to this regard as well. But certainly, you know, as you're raising kids, um, there's just no reason. And if a school's requiring you to do it, you should question that school. There's no reason for kids to have unfettered, unsupervised internet access, given everything, given the fact that there's weirdo adults who are going to try to go after them on the internet. And it's so easy to talk to them. I mean, you know, you're a, if you're a 13 year old with a Twitter account, let's say you have the most innocent reason for it, that you're on there to, uh, you know, I was just watching uh, my favorite NBA team, the Minnesota Timberwolves blow a 20 point lead. And you're on for that reason. And, you know, that's all innocent. And then somebody DMs you. And I know I've heard plenty of stories and I'm sure Timothy has as well of these young children being online in a very innocent way and then being exploited and taken down this horrific road, often even trafficked. And so I think first and foremost, you know, again, I think porn sites deserve the brunt of this. 
we should go after them. We should, you know, create all the liability we possibly can and sue them out of out of business. But the tech companies are next, and and that's where I would say that we really need to go. Is you know, kids especially shouldn't have access to this stuff. And you know, then you get into the same question with the porn. What about adults? I mean, is it healthy? You know, I I do it for work, right? Again, I have my smartphone by me all day. But is it really healthy that I'm looking at my phone probably eight cumulative hours a day? I mean, if I'm being honest, no, that's that's definitely not. And so I think you tie these two issues together. Um, you know, Timothy being an addiction counselor and addiction coach can definitely tell you uh, there's probably not a big gap between you know social media addiction, uh, between phone addiction, and then also porn addiction because it's habit forming and it's just right there. Um, so that would be my biggest suggestion, certainly to parents who are looking to protect their kids. Uh, there's just no re need for these devices. They are, I mean, there's literally a reason I, I have a cover on it or I'd take it off. But look at the back of your iPhone. It's literally a bitten apple from the Garden of Eden. Okay. <laughs> if you have any question as to whether these things are evil, okay, there it is right there. So um, that, that'd be my biggest suggestion. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. There's, Go ahead. There's an aspect to this conversation where, and you mentioned this towards the beginning, John, the idea of decency or indecency. And it's reasonably well known that as it should be, public nudity and public indecency is illegal. Now I say should be because we have a variety of exceptions to that, depending on the movement in our weird sexualized world that we live in, where we can have men wear thongs in front of children and that's okay for some people, but I digress. The point I'm getting at is we in our culture have certain agreed upon notions of that that public indecency is still wrong you can't be naked at a school as a grown man you can't go onto a playground and start flashing kids that's really not okay but what's fascinating is that the internet is at a place now where it's so broadly accepted and accessible that what is posted online is public but it can be consumed in private and in the case of the children being exposed to this children can look at in private what they what is illegal for them to see in public as far as being out you, you wouldn't let a child into a brothel hopefully right. but we can look that stuff up online because it is public there's public access to these things so it's interesting even for me to think about how we perceive what is public as opposed to what is private because we have an ability now through those smartphones and through other online devices for children and adults alike to witness things in private through public access, what would otherwise be illegal publicly. Yeah, yeah. No, tech has completely changed the ball game, and and again, this is where I think going away from obscenity statutes has been a mistake. You know, the reality is, if we still were enforcing these, and let's let's take something apart from porn. Let's say like a, a public beheading video. Okay, let's say you were gawking and you were looking at this one to know what was going on. Um, you know, that would have been obscenity in the past, and whoever was posting that would have been liable for it. Um, you know, I, I really think part of what's really 
eroding the American conscience and, and really making us certainly spiritually, but also just morally, if you want to be secular about it, uh, lacking is this readily available, horrific content that yep. uh, we just consume like crazy. And, you know, and we all do it. I mean, even beyond like, I mean, we all, I, look, most men, we've looked at porn, like that's the reality. But like even some of the weird stuff today on Twitter, there was that viral video of the hockey player yeah. um, ki kicking the other hockey player. And, you know, the sadly, the, the, the player who was kicked died. And I'm guilty of it myself. I watched that video like six times. Just kind of this like weird, like, oh, what is, what's going on there? Was that intentional? You know, we can't look away. And I think tech just really opens us up to this corruption of the human soul. Um, and taking things, I think your point is exactly right, Michael, taking things that would not be acceptable in public to be shown. Like I bet that that clip is not being shown on ESPN or on, right. on TV, but then right. privatizing it. So then we all watch it, but we watch it by ourselves. So it's okay. Well, we still have laws that are that are governing like radio stations where you, where you can't swear, you know, on the radio uh, without having to having to bleep it out or potentially, you know, face it a, a large fine. Um, and, and so it's like we 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 have those rules already in place from decades past when we had as a culture a better understanding of, yeah, we shouldn't have just like endless swearing and profanity on the radio station for any kid to stumble upon. But then all of a sudden when it's the internet, it's like, it's no problem. You know, we can just have whatever graphic depiction that we want uh, unfettered access to that for anyone to stumble upon. It's just like that. It's just it, especially since radio is such a smaller consumed medium. Now it's just, it's ridiculous that we haven't sort of updated our, our, um, our guidelines to, to fit the times, but here we are. And, well, and the extent. crazy thing, just really quick, uh, Timothy, the crazy thing is if you look at the Supreme Court decision that said essentially that porn is speech, one of the biggest arguments they made was that the Internet is not as pervasive as TV and radio. Like, that's why. <laughs> that's why. That's insane, obviously, now. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't then, you know, 25 years ago. It it, it wasn't. Um, I mean, I've even seen that in 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 my lifetime. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm almost 37 and, you know, like we were talking earlier, you know, it wasn't that daily, not even just daily part of our lives, like every hour and minute part of our lives. Like it, it wasn't that way then, like it is now. Um, to your point about all the devices and stuff. Yeah. I mean, every porn addiction is really a device addiction and every device addiction is really a dopamine addiction. And so the correlations that I see with it are guys that are addicted to porn or addicted to their phones. You know, they're addicted to social media. They're um, a lot of them are addicted to video games. It's a video games is a huge. Uh, I think it's a problem anyway, but um, precursor to porn addiction. And, and that's just a dopamine thing where you're getting all that dopamine from from video games or from social media or whatever. And, and your your brain to look at it from a scientific level is looking for more dopamine. And so it has to, you know, up the game. And the, the easiest way to up that game is to go right to porn. And so, yeah, I think the, the device issue is, is a huge part of it as well. Oh, yeah, there's it definitely like discipline. The, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. The technologies. I mean, we know the technology has advanced much faster 
in our generation than I think it's safe to say most generations prior right. to us. I mean, we've we've gone in my lifetime from hey, wired phones and dial-up to now we have access to literally any possible thing in the palm of our hands at all ages, at all times, mm-hmm. with no limitations. Seemingly no limitations. That's that's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I I grew up looking through a paper dictionary if I didn't know the meaning of a word. And that's just... <laughs> That itself is foreign to most any kid. Very archaic. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is that the, as those technological advances have given us more and more access to information, that's the driving force, right, is, is a network of information so that we can have increased uh, knowledge, I guess, would be maybe the purest idea behind that, even though it doesn't have... It seldom actualizes itself in that way, but with that, there's been a lag in the ethical boundaries that have been placed upon the advances in technology. Because if we compare to radio or television, television was a huge thing, and when it came out, it was like, whoa, you can watch television in your own house, you know, after years of years of development. Then the broadcasters were put under really strict. Uh, ethical guidelines and boundaries for what they were and were not allowed to show on television and the same was had already been applied to radio and it seems like with the growth rate of our access has far surpassed the ability to track the ethical boundaries for that access and we like to think of that as maybe like a free speech issue where like we've said throughout the conversation of people saying that you should be able to express yourself in whatever way. Well, that's not always been the case. You know, not very seldom in American history have we been able to express ourselves in every possible way because there are guidelines and there are boundaries for what is acceptable and ethical within the public forum. And being that this is a public forum, I want to know, and maybe this is for you, John, you've talked a bit already about what your goal is as within the organization, but what realistically do you think the future steps towards implementing ethical guidelines are beyond the age limitations and beyond maybe access to pornography? Like what do you have a vision for what the future may hold as far as the development of future technologies as well with AI and with additional things that we may not even know about and how to implement uh, legislation that balances the ethics behind these things? So I think strategically, one of the, the best things we can do is to impose as much liability as possible for anyone who wants to distribute this stuff. Meaning, you know, like with AI, uh, you know, if 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 AI uh, creates a likeness of Donald Trump doing a lewd sexual act, you know, have a right of action on the books so Trump can sue him, right? Sue the developer of the AI. Um, and I, I think doing that and and kind of um, as Trump once said, you know, loosening up the libel laws, uh, I actually think that could have a, a pretty effective you know, uh, effect. Um, 
you know, we look at Section 230 right now, and courts essentially interpret that as this carte blanche immunity from civil liability for all sorts of grotesque stuff. Uh, and I, I think that's that's part of the problem. So, you know, really, it is there's just no responsibility on the part of the distributors of this filth. They get to do whatever they want. Um, it can be as terrible as possible, really skirting up the line to CSAM in a lot of cases. And they get away with it because of our kind of crazy uh, First Amendment jurisprudence. And so, you know, I think the hope is, well, you know, we maybe get to a point where uh, maybe an aggressive Department of Justice decides to start uh, prosecuting obscenity, you know, tack on an obscenity charge to a uh, child exploitation case, but also ding them on distributing pornography to minors and kind of set the stage for more enforcement later. Um, I actually don't think it's something that we we couldn't necessarily see in our lifetime. I mean, I do think there's going to be a pretty aggressive backlash to what we've seen, this kind of libertine, you know, tech revolution. Um, my guess is that it's going to have horrible outcomes for the upcoming generation, and there's going to be a backlash. It'll probably be a backlash against speech, to be honest with you, um, and we have to be careful with that. But, you know, ultimately... I just don't think that these people deserve any sort of immunity. Like, I mean, if you're exploiting kids, you should be going to jail, whether you're actually on the supply side where you're doing the CSAM material or whether you're knowingly distributing horrific material to 11 year olds. That that's, mm -hmm. that's exploitation as well. Yeah. We really only have, when you think about it, 20 years of internet based porn. Right. And so that seems like a long time and it is, but it's not long enough to see the generational effects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the difference is all of us grew up. I'm not trying to age anybody, but grew up somewhat pre-internet, <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, I remember when we got the internet in, in the mid nineties and it was like, what in the world is this? We can email people, you know? And, and the big thing was that we could email missionaries who were in Timbuktu or whatever, you know, that was like the huge thing. And can you tell I grew up in a church? <laughs> and, um, but, uh, you know, we haven't had it long enough to see those effects. We haven't had someone who, you know, who was was born at the height of the iPhone. You know, the iPhone, we talk about how terrible the iPhone is. The iPhone's only, you know, uh, you know, 17 years old or something. I don't think even that, right? 2007, 2008, something like that. So there, there isn't just enough generational data to see those long-lasting effects and i think over time like john said over the next 10 to 15 years we're going to see a backlash and unfortunately i don't think it's going to come from people seeing the fault of their ways and these these companies seeing that hey this is actually damaging people because we live in a fallen world and a sinful world and the enemies at work in this world i think the the backlash will come from one the mental health side is where it will come from. And just the fact that people aren't able to cope, you know, they'll see the damage that devices have done to people and do that. I don't think it will, they'll stop it out of the goodness of their heart because they see porn as a bad thing. I think it'll come from the other areas uh, of where that damage is, is being seen. Now with that generational strife that we can anticipate, I know, all three of you guys are blessed with children and maybe starting with Connor, I want to know, what sort of boundaries 
will you put in place in your home that maybe the government and maybe the world is not willing to put into place yet? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've thought about this and of course it's a moving target because I've got very, very little children. Um, but, uh, I don't think that we're planning on really having them have smartphones at all until, you know, they want to buy one as an adult, um, because it's super easy to go ahead and just give a child a smartphone and a screen to babysit them. But I mean, look at how well that's worked out for past generations. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, and for this, this current generation that has, has been raised on, uh, being babysat by a smartphone. Sorry, not sure if you can hear it. My dog's drinking in the background. So hope you guys enjoy that extra, extra white noise. But, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think that's a boundary that we're going to put in place. No smartphone until you decide to buy one for yourself as an adult. I think no unfettered internet access. I think they can be on the internet. You know, there's a balance of I want them to at least be somewhat aware of the technology just so they can at least be functional in the world. But it will be very limited because the reality is I think that they're going to be uh, much wiser and more prepared to face the real world anyways if they spend more time you know, with a book in their hands as opposed to a, a, a tablet in their hands. So that's something that I, that I would say for me is an immediate, uh, an immediate intention on our part for uh, the coming years as our kids get old enough to actually explore screens and want to have access. Yeah. I, I probably have a little bit of a different perspective because I have teenagers. Um, and you know, as, as I, I love everything that John is doing. I think what you're doing is incredible. I think it's, 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 it's a blessing to have, and it's doing the Lord's work. But to me, the real front line is, is with the parents. That's the, that's the real front line of this battle. And it, it comes down to, are the parents, first of all, their parents fix the problems themselves or they're dealing with it themselves. You know, so that's issue number one. Two, are they able to instill that in those children and have the um, parenting, I'll call it patience, to not give in to the societal pressure to give your kid a smartphone at, at seven years old? You know, are they at that point in their parenting and are they being taught by the church and whoever to be good parents? So that they aren't tempted to just give their kid an iPad to shut them up when they're out to dinner. I mean, how many times you see that you go out to a restaurant and they just throw an iPad at a kid. Guessing. And, yeah. and that, that's, a, that's a completely different topic and completely different issues that have nothing to do with porn, but it, it, yeah. it does at the same time, it does, it leads to that, you know, um, share a Joel in the chat said that she sees it all the time in public schools. Every kid had right. one. Well, yeah, all, all my kids, um, you know, they all take their tests and everything. My, both my kids, I have a daughter in college now, so it's a little bit different, but um, my younger one, she's, she's been in like third grade. She's had a laptop at school, you know, and now granted those are restricted. And and that goes to, to some of John's point, you know, these kids can't look up just anything on their school laptops. So why are we as, if the school's saying as, as messed up as the public school system is now, if they're saying we have to put some sort of restrictions on these kids' computers, why in the hell are we as parents letting these kids do it? And so that's where, like I said, I think that front line is the is is with the parents. The parents have to instill that in their kids. They have to be all right them, you know, have a positive relationship with themselves. 
and then be able to instill that to them. And to me, that comes down to them being healthy themselves. And it comes down, honestly, to go back to some of what we were talking earlier and Michael was saying earlier, it comes back to the, the church having those resources for parents too. And, and, yeah. and, and, and teaching that and talking about it in those circles, that's where it starts too. Yeah, I agree. John, if you have anything to add, feel free. No, I, I agree with Timothy. Um, you know, it's, it's got to start with parents. Uh, you know, the law can be a teacher and, and I think that's important. Uh, but you know, ultimately, I mean, this is such a pervasive thing. It's got to be a cultural reaction to it. Um, and fortunately, you have groups working on the political side, but you also have some great people working on the cultural side to try to address this. Um, and, you know, I do think, I, again, I guess I'm optimistic on this issue. I'm not optimistic on every issue. I'm, I'm actually pretty <laughs> black belt on a lot of things. But uh, on this in particular, because there's this kind of cross-cultural, bipartisan um, view on pornography. There's really no one out there defending porn except the actual adult industry and their lobbyists. Uh, I, I think people recognize this stuff is just really disordered, right? That, you know, fundamentally sex is supposed to be an act, uh, the union between man and woman. I know we've kind of gone beyond that now, uh, but it is supposed to be an act between two people. And, um, you know, this is fundamentally perverse. It's an act between you and yourself um, watching other people do, do an act. And so, uh, you know, I think, I think we can have a, a cultural reaction to that. Hopefully that'll spur some change. Um, but ultimately, you know, from my perspective, just because it's what I do, so I'm probably biased. You know, I think we need to see more leadership from our elected officials. One of the things uh, I really try to stress and my boss, Terry Schilling, tries to stress, you know, a lot of these, especially Republican politicians, are not very courageous on this issue. They're afraid to be the porn guy, right? And uh, they don't want to talk about it for, for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, but there is just a total lack of, especially among this nation's voting base, the, the I'd say Gen X and baby boomers, about what porn even is now, yeah. right? If they knew, I mean, if they really knew what it was, they, they, would, they would obviously say this needs to be, you know, kill it with fire. Um, and, and so I think that's what we have to do is, is educate these folks, identify champions who will lead on this. It may end up being a Democrat ultimately um, because Republicans are, are chicken. But, um, but, you know, I mean, can you imagine, we'll just say that for a second because I disagree with them on almost everything. But if Joe Biden came out tomorrow and talked about, hey, you know, pornography is a problem. They're going after kids. We need to do something about it. It would get done. Like it would actually yeah. get done. And so, um, you know, that's what we need. And, and sadly, so far, you know, I, I know this issue is evolving, but the Republican presidential candidates, not a single one has said anything on this yet. Um, and so we're working on that and hopefully we'll get some leadership soon. Good. Good. Well, we have just a few minutes here and I want to kind of throw out, um, going back to the personal struggle, I want to throw out maybe some um, ideas of, of what a, a man can do to rid himself of, of the addiction. And of course, these principles work for women as well. Um, we've just been drawing upon our experience as men for the most of this conversation. But uh, I mean, we could definitely have spent another uh, another good chunk of time talking about uh, the struggle that women have with pornography as well, because that is on the rise. It's, it's 
it won't be long until I think it's mirroring the numbers that men are putting out, which is something that I think most of us would not have thought of um, 10 years ago even. Um, but uh, I want to talk more about uh, what an individual can do to, to break their addiction. So I'm going to just uh, throw out a few things. And then uh, with the remainder of our time, you guys can just uh, add in whatever you think I missed and uh, feel free to um, push back if you think I'm off on some of it. But I think one of the biggest things is to be focused on building rather than focus on just quitting. And both Michael and Timothy kind of spoke to this um, briefly earlier, but I'm going to highlight it a little bit more. Um, when you spend time focusing on something that you want to be as opposed to what you don't want to be, it really does make a mental shift that is super crucial to um, making it to where you're not constantly thinking about your addiction. Honestly, you're just focusing on what you're trying to accomplish as opposed to, as opposed to, um, what you're trying to <laughs> avoid. Um, and so I, I would say that's something that's super huge. The times that I was strongest in my, um, in my battle and I was, um, I was falling into my addiction the least were usually the times where I was the most busy with positive things in my life, whether that be, uh, I used to be a musician and, um, played in a band for a while. So back when I was recording and, and doing concerts and things like that, and I was super busy with that. And then eventually it became um, me actually involved in a, a men's purity group later in college. This was after I, I, um, I, I first got clean from my addiction. And one of the things that kept me from it was, was focusing on leaving this men's purity group um, that I did in my, in my college dorm. And then um, things like uh, I, I spent that same year, um, engaged to my wife. So, um, uh, actually it wasn't that year it was the next year I was engaged to my wife. So, you know, planning for a wedding was something that kept me very busy and just doing things like, uh, instead of picking up my phone, I picked up a copy of the Lord of the Rings, you know, just something, uh, something that's much more fruitful of my time. Um, and so I would say focusing on building is huge. Um, I would say brotherhood is also big. Um, Timothy already mentioned this. It was his brothers that ultimately got him to quit. It wasn't his wife. And there's something about a brotherhood that's just different. Um, maybe it's just because we can relate to one another. Um, you guys can um, elaborate on that if you guys, if you guys uh, want in a moment, but you know, I, I think that having a brother um, with you that walks you through it and is on your side, um, the brotherhood is, is huge. They can, uh, like Odysseus, they can tie you to the mast when you're going over the sirens. You know, if you know that you need that extra help, they're the guys that can tie you to that mast when you're not willing to tie yourself to it. Um, and then uh, finally, I would say before I turn it over to you guys, uh, there is a point where as you continue to focus on your relationship with God, for those of us that um, that that do believe that Christ is is Lord of all. Uh, as you continue to focus on that relationship, he will sanctify you over time and you will reach a point where right now I just, I don't even desire it anymore. And it's such a blessing. It, it took time to get to that point, but, but nowadays, um, you know, uh, John, you're mentioning your phone usage and, and I've been using my phone a lot more lately because of this podcast. I've honestly been using it to, uh, just build this podcast and have fun. Um, you know, um, editing thumbnails and things like that. So I'm on it more than I had previously been uh, in the last couple of years of my life. Um, I've been off social media for a long time, except now uh, I'm on X just for this podcast. Um, but I don't desire to go looking for those things anymore because that, that desire has been taken from me. And that doesn't mean that I can't ever stumble back into it. Um, but, uh, but a lot of that has come from me focusing on following, uh, following my savior as opposed to, um, 
trying to avoid my addiction. So uh, those are just some tips that I'm throwing out. So I'll turn it over to either of you guys to pick up and add whatever you want. Yeah. Um, you kind of took, took the words right out of my mouth with that. To me, I always say it comes down to three, uh, three H's help habits and heart. And you just, you just covered all, all three of those, <laughs> you know, the help aspect is, is huge accountability is, 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 is huge. This is not a battle you win alone and you need a brother alongside you. And whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, like with me, with what I do as coaching, but also just having brothers in Christ around you. Heck, even if you're not a Christian, just having other positive men around you. Yeah. Men don't have that. They don't have those places where men can go to and be vulnerable and share their burdens and share their their hurts and their hearts. You know, if if you get too close with another guy, you're you're called gay or a bromance. <laughs> you know, it's not taken seriously. I mean, we need that male intimacy and brotherhood and connection, and that's lacking in today's world, which I think has a lot to do with the problems we're seeing just with porn specifically, but it, just in society in general and the overall weakness of of, of masculinity in, in the 21st century. But we need that help. We need that guidance. We need that accountability. We need that support. Um, we need that kick in the rear end every once in a while, you know, and somebody to, to tell us, you know, you know, get your head in the game type of thing. So help is important. Like you say, habits are, are important, you know, focusing on focusing on going somewhere, you know, instead of what you're coming from. A friend of mine uses this great example where he talks about, you know, uh, you know, we need to be looking out the windshield, not the rearview mirror. You know, you need the rearview mirror to remember where you came from and make sure something doesn't sneak up on you and bite you in the in the butt. But you can't all the time look out the rearview mirror or you'll crash into something in front of you. Mm -hmm. You got to look out the windshield and occasionally look back and see where you came from and keep going forward. Um, I do an exercise with the guys I coach where I have them look at their lives and I say, imagine your life in five years if you're still stuck in porn like you are now. And that's often a dark picture. I have guys, you know, I'm divorced. I lost my kids. Yeah, I have guys who've told me I wouldn't be here because I'd probably kill myself. But then I say, now look at what your life would be like when you've beaten this. What are you capable of without these chains holding you back? Mm. You know, and that's what we're working toward. We're not just trying to quit porn. We're trying to heal. Yeah. And, and establish godly men. And that brings us to the third part, heart. You know, we have to fix the heart. Uh, you have to fix the emotional issues. And you have to have Jesus in your heart. Now, I don't believe that you have to be a Christian to quit porn, or I don't think that being a Christian should be the only reason you quit porn. But I can't deny what God's done in my life. And I can't look at my world in any other way but through the worldview of the scriptures. And so... We have to allow him into our heart because that's where the true healing takes place and the true forgiveness takes place and the true redemption and changing our lives and repentance takes place. So it takes all three of those things, I think. I, I, I think if you only do one, you, you'll, you'll end up in the same spot months from now. I think it really takes all three of those things, help, habits, and heart, in order to find freedom. Amen. 
Uh, well, I, it's hard to follow up on that because that was pretty good. <laughs> um, but I, I'll, I'll say, you know, the two words that pop to mind for me, um, opportunity, I think, is, you know, ultimately what kind of happens when people relapse into this addiction. Uh, you know, I grew up, my parents, I thought this was really smart back. This is back in the early 2000s, but we had a family computer and that was it. Smartphones weren't out yet. You know, it's out in the open. I couldn't have looked at porn if I wanted to, right? I mean, it just wouldn't really, it wasn't possible. Now, I know things are a little different now with technology, but I think that's kind of certainly, you know, with my house here, what I'm trying to model for my kids. Um, and then the second thing, and and you guys might disagree with me a little bit on this because, uh, you know, you, you have that evangelical background and you guys spoke a little bit of the problems with this at the start, but um, I think shame has to be a part of this too. And I don't mean shame in like a deep, you know, trying to make people feel horrible about themselves sense, but certainly societal shame. And I'll give you an example. Um, I was an RA in college. Uh, and, you know, when you're an RA with a bunch of college freshmen, you run into a lot of masturbation. Um, it's just reality. And uh, I remember dealing with a situation between two uh, roommates and the one was constantly masturbating while the other was in the room. Just really weird, disordered stuff. And, you know, I had to bring this up. And, and again, this is like a nightmare scenario as, a, as an RA. You're like, what am I supposed to say? And so, you know, the angle I took with it, I, I tried to, I did this personally, just with the, with the gentleman. And, you know, I basically tried to be like, dude, this is gross. What are you doing? Like, this is, you know, trying to make him feel a little bit bad, but also like from a, from a place of compassion. Um, yeah. And I think generally ribbing is something guys do amongst each other to socially correct and you know everyone's calling it bullying now there's obviously <laughs> some bullying but like social ribbing is is important like it's it's how we learn not to be obnoxious uh you know like uh i was i remember in sixth grade always raising my hand in class wanting to hear my own voice and until i got ribbed enough to where oh okay you know maybe that's a little obnoxious um my my point with this is just i i think that's something where we have the numbers on our side. Like I mentioned, you know, nobody's really calling their representative to fight for their access to porn. Um, we have societal uh, pressure on our side. And so I think we need to use it a little bit more, um, certainly legislatively, but also within the culture. Um, so, yeah, those are the, the two things. I mean, I think ultimately, uh, again, for the first time, you know, this felt this issue felt hopeless five years ago. Again, I remember sitting down with my boss working on that op-ed about how to regulate pornography and researching Reno and all these different things. And I was just like, oh, this is never going to happen. And here we are in late 2023, and it's inevitable to some degree. I, you know, these laws aren't perfect, but, you know, next year I could die, knock on wood, you know, APP could not do anything on it. I still think a lot of these laws would pass into law. So um, I don't know. It's exciting. Um, I, I think the work folks are doing on this is really important. We just got to keep trucking. Yeah, I agree. And that was kind of what I was talking to earlier about uh, stigmatization. We need to re we need to stigmatize it again, like what you were saying. And you you uh, laid that out much more eloquently than I did. But Michael, feel free to jump in with anything else. Yeah, I, I really appreciate, John, what you're saying about access. I think that's one of the really common things with guys that I mentor or try to guide through a pornography addiction is I'll ask them, like, what are your triggers? so that they can recognize the sort of things that set them into that mindset. 
but also when are you most likely going to be doing something like this? Is it late at night while you're alone in your bedroom? Is it in the shower with your phone? Is it whenever? And then the next question is, okay, since you know that you have that habit, why do you make that accessible to yourself? And this was something that Connor challenged me in when we were in college together. So I started putting my devices under his bed in his bedroom every night when we went to bed because I knew that I couldn't handle it, having it alone in my bedroom. So that social accountability was a big part of it, but also removing access was really important for me on a practical level. But beyond that, I mean, a lot of the things that we've already said, um, I will say it is really important to have men, men who have conquered this problem to guide you. It is less helpful to have men who are trying to get freedom to try to balance each other out because then, I don't know, it ends up being either you are in a constant habit of confessing to each other with no real repentance or you make exceptions for each other so that you can have an exception for yourself. Hmm. But you don't have that if you have a mentor who has overcome this issue or does not struggle with this issue and that that was really important for me in my walk as well. It was being encouraged and held accountable by guys who knew what it was like and knew how to get out of it. And to that effect, if you're a young man who is trying to get out of this and wants to get married, know that you need to be able to stand in front of your wife and tell her the truth before you marry her. Yeah. And if you're a guy who's struggling with this and is already married and your wife doesn't know, know that there needs to come a day when you're able to stand in front of her and be truthful with her. Now, that being said, women's brains are wired a little bit differently and it's tough to just lay it all bare the same way you would with a male counselor or a male mentor. But if you want to have intimacy with a woman in a serious way, I think that relational intimacy comes as full disclosure as well and then work with a mentor on what ongoing disclosure looks like as you're continuing to find freedom but it was really important for me before my wife and i got married i laid it all out on the table and told her exactly what i had done how long it had been an issue and how long it had been since i was free hmm. and yep. that was a sorrowful and painful experience but a necessary one so that now not only do the men in my life hold me accountable, but I know that my wife will hold me accountable too. And I trust her to do that. And she trusts me to be able to be honest and upfront with her as well. Yep. So, it works. That's an important thing. Yeah. The last thing that I want to add, and maybe just to close us out here is out of first Corinthians chapter six, I'm going to start in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually moral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. We appreciate you joining us. We're going to go ahead and go around the horn so you guys can all shout out uh, where people can keep up with you. So, John, we'll start with you. Where can people go to keep up with everything that you're doing? Well, I am on Twitter at John Schweppe. And then I also have a sub stack, which, frankly, guys, I got to write a little bit more. It's been uh, pretty sparse lately, but that is at johnschweppe.substack.com. Awesome. Where can people go if they want to get involved with APP? Uh, AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. And honestly, the best way I'm going to solicit a contribution, but it's a small one, uh, give us like a buck and you'll get on all of our lists. You'll get our stuff. Uh, you know, we're doing pretty exciting stuff. It's, it's a really fun time to work there. But, um, you know, I think social conservatism, especially and religious conservatism, it's, it's in a different place now than it was maybe 10 years ago. And uh, it's where a lot of exciting things are happening. So we're doing our best. And uh, if you, you know, want to sign up for our list, we'd love to have you. Awesome. Cool. Timothy, where can people go to keep up with you? Yeah, kind of the same on social media. Uh, Twitter and Instagram are the two big ones for me, where it's just my name, Timothy Regal. Um, my website is, is the same, timothyregal.com, where you can find out more about my coaching, um, what I do to help men one-on-one, and then... I have my book, uh, Living Porn Free, 10 Steps to Recovery, Redemption, and Renewal, uh, which is available on Amazon. Awesome. Michael, where can people find you? You will find me enjoying sleepless nights while researching and writing an exegesis of Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. Awesome. You can find me also having sleepless nights with a newborn. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) We appreciate you joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.